Support for this program is provided by Chevron. This is Politico Energy. I'm Nirmal Malaykul. After President Joe Biden signed an executive order last month to ban the import of Russian oil and gas to the U.S., Americans have rallied to support their Ukrainian people and made it clear we will not be part of subsidizing Putin's war. Congress has now followed suit, voting on Thursday to suspend normal trade relations with Russia and doubling down on a Russian oil and gas ban. This doesn't signal that the parties are suddenly united on energy policy. This was the rare move that had very little drawbacks for both parties that they came at for different reasons, but we're, again, seeing very partisan reaction more broadly on kind of where to go from here. Today, Politico's Josh Siegel and I talk about what a ban actually means and where Congress can go from here on energy. It's Friday, April 8th. So, Josh, the Senate passed a ban on imports of Russian oil and gas weeks after the House did the same thing, and it's now headed to the president's desk. Why did it take so long for the Senate to act, and what prompted action now? So the House approved the oil embargo last month with overwhelming bipartisan majorities, and it just languished around for about three weeks in the upper chamber. Senators kind of raised objections to moving quickly on the legislation. The Senate tends to be slower as it is. And we weren't even sure at first that the Senate was going to vote on the bill at all because you had the main proponents of this measure, Joe Manchin and Lisa Murkowski, had said, well, you know, the president, remember, he already did this after those two had kind of prodded Biden to act. So we weren't even sure if they were going to do anything at all. But yeah, eventually in my conversations with senators, you know, what prompted action now? I mean, one thing is the calendar. They're having a two week recess here starting next week. And also, I just think the really lawmakers were reeling over these images that are coming out of Ukrainian civilians in mass graves lying dead in the streets. And it's just, you know, these are powerful images and they wanted to, again, set a message of unity, bipartisan unity. This was a very rare vote that was unanimous. There were no no votes in the Senate. So that sends a powerful signal, they say. Right. And you mentioned the vote was unanimous, 100 to zero, which is, you know, pretty rare to see in Washington. So why was there so much consensus on this ban? Yeah, I think there was a lot of consensus first off because there's not a ton of actual impact or consequence for this vote. So if you're a Republican or a Democrat, we've already seen, again, refiners in the U.S. are not taking Russian oil. So that's already played out in the market. So if there was going to be an increase in gasoline prices, it's happened already. Nothing additional would happen from this vote. So it's of little consequence. And second, this wanting to send this message. I mean, I had Tina Smith, a senator out of Minnesota, you know, she told me at a time when there's so many partisan divides, a lot of it has to do with people being so inspired by the Ukrainians and their willingness to literally put their lives in the line for democracy. So I just think it was a very low consequence move, but also they thought symbolically did send quite the message. Got it. And is this, just to clarify, any different than what President Joe Biden put in his executive order or from what the House did? Yeah, the differences between the House and the Senate aren't very material, but it is Congress acting 
is definitely, you know, I talked with Lisa Murkowski again, who was one of the original backers of this, and she points out that this measure, this additional legislation is important because it allows Congress to vote to reimpose the ban if the president in the future were to try to lift it. In that way, it's not redundant, she said. You know, it's ensuring that the sanctions have some level of reliability, sustainability. I mean, I don't think a lot of people expect that U.S. refiners will suddenly start taking in Russian crude again if that became available to them. But still, I mean, to have that written into into law that Congress would have to come back and lift it, you know, they say is, is powerful and significant. So now that we have this legislation, are lawmakers talking about any other energy-related actions they hope to pass when it comes to Russia? Or is this kind of the extent of what Congress can do? Because ultimately, we know that oil and gas are so important to the Russian economy, and it doesn't look like what's happening in Ukraine is stopping anytime soon. Yeah, so from the U.S. Congress, I would not expect a lot more on energy When I pressed various senators about this idea of secondary sanctions, which would be an escalation, essentially saying that the U.S. would penalize anybody taking in Russian energy, there's not a strong appetite for the Congress to push the administration to take that step because, one, I think there's this appreciation that the administration has worked to make sure they're doing everything in united fashion with NATO allies and, you know, Congress isn't needed there. And second, we're already seeing Europe now grappling. They're going to cut off Russian coal as a first step. And they are now saying that oil is on the table. So it's it's probably could be in the next round. You know, there's not a lot of specifics on that. We don't expect them to do anything on the natural gas side because Europe is even more dependent on Russian gas and oil and gas is especially important. So the consequences would be greater potentially to Europe if they were to cut off gas than it would be to Russia. So that still is hanging out there. But to get back to your question, I don't think you'll see Congress doing much more in this area. Also, the Fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled on Thursday that a climate lawsuit from the city of Baltimore against oil and gas companies should be heard in a Maryland state court. That lawsuit alleges that those companies violated state consumer protection laws by selling fuel products without warning about the effects of climate change. For context, there have been two dozen other similar lawsuits filed around the country in recent years, and Thursday's ruling is the second one by a federal appellate court to argue that the case should be heard at a state level. That's pretty important since legal experts view federal courts as a less friendly venue for climate lawsuits in general. For more news on energy and the environment, subscribe to our newsletter at politico.com slash morningenergy. Some of the music in today's show was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Josh Siegel is the host of Politico Energy. I'm the show's producer. Carlos Prieto and Raghu Manavalan edited this week's podcast. Jenny Ament is the executive producer of audio at Politico. Our editors are Matt Daly and Gloria Gonzalez. I'm Nirmal Malaykul, and we'll see you back on Monday. Did you know that Chevron supports the ambitions of the Paris Agreement? In fact, they've even tied their executives' compensation to lowering the carbon emissions intensity of their operations. Because it's only human to help power a brighter future. Learn more at chevron.com slash lower carbon.